Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we analyze, scrutinize, and black-on-black eyes Mad Max to the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 10, which begins with Max driving down a dirt road, and it ends with Max approaching a strange-looking machine. TGIF, there's guests, it's Friday, and today we're joined by our very special guests, Heidi and Molly from the Cabin Minute cast. Hey! Hello! We're happy to be here. Welcome. Yeah. You guys are a remarkable duo because you are actually the first of all of the movies by minute podcasts that have started. You are actually the first dual female team to tackle a movie. Is that right? I believe that's true. At, at this recording, that is true. So unless anybody like jumps out there and starts something before <laughs> we get released, uh, our podcast released in October, but at least uh, the one first announced... Yeah, we're uh, trailblazers. (laughs) Yeah, you guys are like tackling that. That's awesome. And for the benefit of our listeners, I mentioned that it's called The Cabin Minute Cast. What movie are you going to be covering in October? It will be The Cabin in the Woods. Such a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one where it's, um, what's his name? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> it's co-written by Joss Whedon. I think Julia's thinking the, of a certain his name actor. You're thinking of? Starts um, with a B. Chris Hemsworth rhymes with Bradley, Bradley Whitford. Whitford. Oh, Bradley Whitford! <laughs> oh. That's yeah. the one with Bradley Whitford, right? Yes. yes. Okay, I know this because I'm a huge West Wing fan. Oh. Gotcha. And I've only seen Cabin in the Woods once. And from what I remember, his character in Cabin in the Woods is pretty much just like his character in the West Wing. <laughs> He's very Josh. Yes. In Cabin in the Woods. And it is delightful. It really is wonderful. <laughs> That's like the standout memory. It's been oh, maybe five or six years since I've seen the movie last. Wow. Well, we do have you on our list of people that we want to talk with when we yes. get rolling. So it sounds yes. like you've got some, we'll give you some Bradley Whitford minutes. Absolutely. That would be I don't think, so much fun. I don't think <laughs> anything would make you happier than having Bradley Whitford minutes to talk about. Any excuse, right? Yes. I I don't think I can overstate my love for the West Wing. So awesome. any any actor that comes from there, I'm like still in love with, like what, 15? <laughs> years later Mm. yeah so what attracted you guys to the cabin in the woods what made you pick that movie that's a good question and i definitely want us both to answer it i mean you asked us both but i'm excited because at this juncture we have not recorded any episodes together yet so we're just still learning about our love for it together but on my own it's just one of my favorite genres which there aren't too many films of which is that combination of comedy and horror and I definitely recognize that one of the key ingredients for most films even hardcore dramas is that there's some element of comedy whether there's a dark comedy or even just sort of silly slapstick or anything else it just has to have some comedy element and 
And then there's just a lot of mystery and twists and turns. It's one of those films that you can watch a bunch of times over and I think find all sorts of interesting Easter eggs. And much like Spinal Tap, every single time I've seen this movie, I see something, oh, 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 that, and I connect this to that, and oh, I never noticed this before. You know, the something to unpack minute by minute sounded really exciting. So that's what drew me to it. And Molly? I am a huge Joss Whedon fan. And which is kind of funny because when Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show was out, I saw one episode that was completely divorced from the entire, really was an atypical episode. And I remember at the time being like, this sucks. And I didn't go back to it until like a Thanksgiving where there was a marathon. And I just really fell in love with his storytelling and and really became a devotee. And when Cabin in the Woods came out, it was, you know, because he does have, well, now with Marvelverse, that's that's a whole other jam. But um, at the time before Avengers came out, he had a pretty limited film run, in a sense. And to be able to see, you know, Cabin in the Woods, which I feel has such a strong, like, typical Joss Whedon flavor to it. And and Heidi had mentioned that she wanted to do that. And I was immediately like, please, I, I will do anything. Just can I at least guest on one episode? <laughs> and she came back later and was like, well, do you want to, you know, co-run it with me? And, and I was just, yeah, yes. It was just an automatic yes, please. So I'm really excited about the movie in and of itself because of the the mythology and the humor and just that it's it's a fantastic ensemble and, and there's a real strong, you know, obviously we're like, yay, ladies, but <laughs> there's a strong pro-lady element to it too. And of course, there's Bradley Whitford, who is fantastic in it, which, you know, doesn't hurt. So Heidi, I know that you just finished up Spinal Tap Minute with Sean German. Yes. Um, and you didn't know each other before recording that show did you know molly before becoming involved with cabin in the woods yeah so actually people who listen to me on spinal tap minute know that i'm at heidibennett.com <laughs> that's <laughs> heidibennett.com as a professional coach for multi-creative people and so i went to school for the certification of being a, a coach and the school that i went to the program that I went to, Molly went to the same program. And so we went through this pretty intense, approximate nine-month program together where we're, you know, delving into all our personal shit, so to speak. <laughs> um, a lot of coaching is learning techniques about how to be there for um, your clients. But at the same time, you're sort of going through this um, self-work exploration. And so, you know, you get pretty close and vulnerable with people. And Molly was the person I felt easiest to be vulnerable with. I just really vibed on her. She's a West Coaster like I am, and, and we're both creative people and creative weirdo types. And so we just sort of bonded through that. And um, then a couple years after graduating that program, we just started talking with each other every other week, kind of, we do a little coaching with each other or kind of talk about just sort of what we're up to and help each other out and just be phone buddies. That's how it happened. 
that sounds like the perfect relationship to have such a deep analytical podcast about a movie. You guys know each other and you're trained in similar ways and you're very comfortable with each other. Yeah, it sounds like a match made in heaven to do this podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. She definitely didn't go through the vetting process that Sean did. (laughs) (laughs) It was just a yes. <laughs> Sean and I had one conversation on the phone and we clicked really well. So, but yeah, I mean, I am excited to do this with somebody who kind of knows all my deep, dark secrets. And- <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and it just has a good sense of humor and and is interested in film the way I am, but with her own you know personal take and stuff. So yeah, nice. It sounds like it's going to be amazing, and I can't wait to to be on it. Cool, <laughs> it'll be so much fun. Yes. <laughs> so speaking of movies and covering minutes we should probably get into the minute at hand which is as i mentioned before minute 10 we start off with max in the black on black the classic v8 interceptor driving along a dirt road and he kind of comes along and then comes to a stop and as i'm watching this minute the first time I think we get our first real instance of hearing some sort of animal noise in the background. Now, Julia, when you were watching the minute, did you catch that animal sound that I'm talking about? Because I'm going to call it a crow noise, but we had a lot of discussion yeah. in the first movie about that. Okay. I'm convinced. Okay. No. <laughs> I agree that it is probably a crow, but I still like get sheep vibes from the noise. <laughs> I guess it's just I don't know. I guess it's just the kind of crows that they have in Australia that sound like they're buying like sheep. And I mean, we actually, when we discussed this way back in another minute that I did not bother to look up the minute for. So everyone is just going to have to go back and listen to the entire first season of the Madness. <laughs> yes. I think we talk about it a couple times. The cawing of, you know, Australian corvids and the braying of Australian sheep. It's a very similar sound at times. And we hear it. It, right at the offset of this minute and it makes me think of all those times we heard crows slash sheep back in the first movie and it always seemed to like foreshadow that max was about to come into contact with someone who meant to do him harm mm-hmm. a lot of the times when scenes were happening that featured the bikies the nomad trash you would hear those crows and it would be kind of like you see the bad guys you hear the crow and and so as max is rolling into the scene i feel like that's kind of a continuation of that audio shorthand that mm. george miller threw into the first movie here into the second and so as max slows down you know maybe get the sense that he's also sensing that something might be a little off about this i am going to reserve judgment on that <laughs> i i think in this instance it is the case where we hear the crow and then max is in danger and those can be connected but the the ideas that we've built up overseeing the original mad max movie was that the crowing represented bad guys well max is kind of he's kind of transitioned he's not like a bad guy but he's not a good guy anymore Hmm. like he's he's kind of straddling this border and i'm just not really sure yet where he fits in this movie and in his actions and i'm not really sure right now yeah i think he's definitely hit that true neutral alignment point and i mean when he was rolling around at the end of the first movie he was driving the v8 interceptor it was the classic 
black on black. It was really dark and scary looking. And now that we've started this second movie, that car is no longer as pitch black as it used to be. In fact, it's it's hard to even call it the black on black anymore just because it is so rusted and covered in dust. Like you could almost call it like the, the gray on orange. <laughs> Yeah, one thing that I noticed, so, you know, you gave us minute 10, and you're talking about color a little bit here with Interceptor, but one thing I just noticed is that, you know, we also previewed the minutes um, from this week so that we could kind of get a little context and talk with you guys about that, is that this appears to be the next day also. So the last scene, it looked like he was driving out, and it was dark and quite foreboding. I don't know if you guys touched on that, but then now, as he's coming towards us, there's a blue sky, white fluffy cloud, so gives us feeling of, you know, opportunity and possibility. And, and yeah, it doesn't look so like such a dark and scary scene, you know, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of orange and some, a little bit of green. And like you said, the interceptors pulling in here and it's, yeah, it's real, it's almost white with the amount of crime it has on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that says a lot about the scene that Max is coming up upon. So there's this machine sitting out with like nothing around it. And we don't really get his approach to the machine in this minute, but we get his approach to the scene where as far as we know, by the end of this minute, the possibilities are endless. We have no idea what's going to happen. We have we have no indications of what's going on here. It's just open and ready for anything to happen. Mm-hmm. The only real thing that we know for sure, and it was established in the prior minutes this week, is that when you've got something, a machine sitting out, if it's got an engine, that means it's got fuel. I mean, mm-hmm. Max went through a lot of painstaking steps to make sure that he get got every last drop of fuel out of the cars that he wrecked. And so, hey, this is just another machine. And as we continue on with the minute, we actually switch perspectives from looking at Max sitting inside the black on black to his perspective looking out the front window. And ahead, we can kind of see it's like a it's a gyrocopter, I think is what it's it's called, like or an auto gyro. Yeah, I found like three or four different names for it mm-hmm. the, but whatever it's called it's yeah. just sitting in a clearing right. i noticed <laughs> once again a sound issue as we were watching this as soon as we switch perspectives into what max is looking at we get an honest to goodness dun 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 in the score <laughs> and i mean brian may he just goes bum 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 and it's nice and drawn out and it's just <laughs> It's not often that you see that anymore because it's such a drawn out trope. And I just love that they threw that in there because you got that lead up shot, that like first 15 seconds of him arriving. And then, oh, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? It's a gyrocopter. And apparently that's nefarious somehow. (laughs) I'm amused by that because I find the gyrocopter to be delightful and I want one. (laughs) Like, it's it's almost like the equivalent of a jetpack. Like, a <laughs> personal flying device. And it just seems like it would be a lot of fun <laughs> to fly that thing around yeah, instead of quite, driving. It's very whimsical looking. Yes. Mm-hmm. So before we start talking about the machine proper, I kind of want to talk about the area around the autogyro. So one resource that we constantly pull from so much that I probably owe them royalties is (laughs) madmaxmovies.com which is a 
fan site and he has a ton of awesome write-ups and on one page specifically he talks about this location which is right north of broken hill along stevens creek it's kind of a dried out riverbed area and they say on the website that if you take Cowlin Street out of town, he says, I hope that's the one, and keep driving for half an hour or so, you should reach the dry creek bed where the scene was filmed. It would be advisable to take a four-wheel drive to avoid becoming bogged in the sandy creek. So with that information in hand, I thought, well, if I have a street to go from and I have a relative amount of time, I'm going to jump on Google Maps and I'm going to try and find oh my goodness. this creek bed using So you're going to try Maps. and find on Google Maps a featureless wasteland specific <laughs> area. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I spent a fair amount of time clicking and zooming and Google has this fun thing where if you ask for directions, it'll give you the approximate amount of time it would go there. So I went into Broken Hill and I found Cowlin Road and I put a little drop at the edge of town and I just kind of dragged the destination up Callan Street until it turned into Nine Mile Road, and then when Nine Mile Road bangs a right off headed east and the road that keeps going straight loses its name i just kept going until it hit about half an hour and wouldn't you know that unnamed road about half an hour north of broken hill runs right across the dried creek bed for stevens creek hmm. and i wouldn't necessarily say that that's the exact spot where this was filmed because for some reason google didn't send the street view car out that way i can't imagine why <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe I wasn't able to get right down. Scared away. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine if someone felt adventurous and had a car that was really good in loose sand and plenty of water and took all the necessary safety precautions and did not fly off, you know, the handle and just go out into the desert willy-nilly, please do not drive off into the desert all willy-nilly. Be smarter <laughs> than that. <laughs> listeners anyway i feel like if someone did try that they'd probably be able to find maybe not the exact spot but a spot that's very close to it hmm. and kind of get to touch history source so to speak <laughs> <laughs> as far as the actual roads are concerned um when nine mile road takes a sharp right and starts heading off east if you follow that road it'll take you back to the silver city highway so if you go north of broken hill and you get cold feet and you want to get back to a major road just follow nine mile road around to the right it'll get you back to civilization a lot faster thanks for like the i said tip. i took i spent a lot of time looking at a map <laughs> <laughs> that's dedication right there <laughs> One thing I noticed about the landscape was just how those kind of, I guess, dried up trees were just a similar size to the copter mobile, whatever you call it. If you weren't paying attention, you might just drive by, you know, because mm. it kind of blends in size and almost shape wise because and color wise, you know, like because it's a little wider at the bottom and then gets a little skinnier at the top, like it could just be you could just drive by and not notice. But I guess that's part of, you know, Max's skills and that he's cultivated is just, you know, paying attention and noticing this thingamajing that's out here doesn't make sense. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that in the years that he's spent in the wasteland and I say years, we don't have a definitive timeline for any of this. In fact, we're kind of operating off the idea that this whole movie is kind of hearsay on the part of the narrator. Mm -hmm. So we're not too worried about actual 
you know, how many years, how many weeks, how many days, anything like that. But you, I digress, you get the sense that Max has kind of trained himself to be able to pick out, okay, that's metal, that's wood, you know, he has an eye for picking out things that are potentially valuable, which means potentially holding gasoline. Or guzzling, as you might say. (laughs) So the things that I noticed in this this minute here, when uh, you mentioned the soundtrack and um, the the, the bird slash mystery sounds, (laughs) is that within... Um, within the car when we're looking at Max and kind of we're sort of with him in the car is that you hear a lot of that you hear a little bit of the jangle of what he's wearing you know it kind of Mm -hmm. has its own little rhythm the clothing that he wears and the the stuff that's sort of strapped on him and then you hear the the birds and the car and all that and the music and then as he steps out of the car and closes the door it all stops for a few uh, you know maybe a split second mm-hmm. and it's not until he starts walking again and kind of gets around the car then you start to hear some of those more um it sounds that just sound like what would you'd hear if you were just standing there with him it was definitely purposeful sound design that again is another sort of it's not dun 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 but it's like the anti dun 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 you know it's this quiet mm. quiet space yeah for a just moment. normal noises i really like the idea that inside the car it is max's world Hmm. you hear the sounds of his world that he hears on a daily basis and then he gets out of the car suspicious of what's going on he i think he knows that it's a trap of some kind he's pretty calm about it not too like paranoid but he he knows he's wary so as soon as he gets out of the car, we have that silence kind of representing him being super on guard <laughs> and then realizing that there is no immediate threat. He kind of relaxes, and kind of goes back to his world a little bit with his noises because he's noisy <laughs> with all his leather and he's got, okay, we failed to notice last minute, the last few minutes that he has tools strapped to his jacket. Mm. I noticed specifically he's got a wrench and I think some other things, but... I saw the wrench specifically. So, yeah, he jingles. Yeah, he definitely jingles. He kind of reminded me of, um, from Spinal Tap Minute, you know, Derek, he wore a lot yes. of leather and accoutrement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And at a certain point, he actually has, like, a, something that we may touch on a little bit later, but he has, like, a bo- basically a bondage outfit on and, and handcuffs just jangling and hanging off of him while he's performing and they don't appear to they just appear to be you know an aesthetic choice kind of reminded (laughs) me oh yeah definitely some parallels there (laughs) well I guess I have a question about where because I understand that there's a lot of resourcing you know that's going on here because they're in the wasteland but I guess my question is where did they get leather pants from in the course of all of this I mean there's a lot of fashion choices that as you're you know tooling around with nothing for you know 20-50 miles like how do you come up with a pair of well-fitting black leather pants you know in the course of things i have an answer for that (laughs) yay (laughs) i have an idea so they are in the australian outback and not only is that where they filmed it's where the movie is set okay in the australian outback they have herds of sheep and cattle that are in the thousands upon thousands. And they have these ranches that are just bigger than states. They're like, they're unfathomably large. And on those ranches work an awful lot of uh, cowboys, for lack of a better term, hmm. who are all wearing chaps. <laughs> 
because you have to. You spend all day on a horse, you have to wear chaps. So that's where they got all the leather from. Yeah. To say nothing of the natural resource of all of the the cows and sheep that are suddenly just wandering around without owner in the post-apocalypse yep and i i also theorized just now popped into my head that they are scantily clad and cut in interesting shapes because they are remnant pieces of leather they're what's left over after a cowboy's chaps have been worn out mm-hmm. so they don't necessarily have like big swaths of fabric to work with yeah they have strips and bits and pieces even max's outfit is the remnant of his mfp uniform yeah mm. torn remnants of the things that he used to wear just normally yep is anybody else getting excited by just the word remnants being found <laughs> instead of <laughs> <laughs> Torn leather remnants. It is getting hot in here. Oh my god, that's amazing. Well, I mean, somebody got really crafty though along the way, and that's what I really appreciate. That it's the apocalypse. People have lost loved ones, and they're like, you know what? Screw it. I am gonna like sew me a wicked pair of chaps that I just found (laughs) along the way, and I just really appreciate that you know sense of like humanity in that moment. You know. And I know this is kind of going back to a prior, you know, prior minute, but even um, I think Wes with he's got feathers like on his his outfit, and I'm like, wow, where did you did you get the feathers individually from birds? Did you like source a boa? Like, what happened there for you that you were like, this is the thing I'm gonna like run around in, you know? Yeah, and I noticed too watching the previous minutes and then up to just as Max exits the car here um, is that. His Australian, what is that kind of dog? His adorable dog, an Australian, like, it is a border collie? Hold is on. it a healer? Healer? A blue healer. A blue healer is that he has, um, he's got some flair, right? He's got his red, <laughs> his red bandana type tied around his neck, but then. And Max doesn't have any red on him that I see in the previous four minutes. But as he's exiting his car and walking around, you see a bit of that red flare on his right shoulder. Mm. So I don't know. He's got like a bandana tied around his upper arm. Yeah. So I don't know if he borrowed that from his healer or if that's something, you know, he's going to. That one of his items that he likes to have on him or what that means i don't know it, or if it means if it's symbolism or who knows what but it kind of reminds me of um watching lord of the rings the lord of the rings you know all those movies if you get the dvds and the blu-rays and there's all those extras and you talk you get to see the um the folks at weta workshop talking about you know, costuming and how authentic and I mean, authentic to a fantasy, but authentic details they put in everything and that Strider's costume had little details of things being sewn up here and and stuck on there and tied over here. And and, and it kind of reminds me of that where there's leather and other pieces of material kind of cobbled together over a a life of being, you know, out and about. Hmm. And I don't know, I just feel like I want to say remnants again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can't say we've gone too closely into Max's outfit, but as we go on with the movie, we start seeing more and more extravagantly dressed people, and you kind of wonder, well, you know, how many 
how many old tour buses did they knock over like Priscilla Queen of the Desert they just <laughs> ransacked for all of the fabulous clothing that they incorporated into their their outfits. As we transition back from Max's POV of the gyrocopter back to him sitting in the car, he licks his lips, kind of thinking, okay, this has potential here. But him licking his lip reminded me that there is no chapstick in the wasteland. Okay. Oh, no, no. I, no, I, no. <laughs> no Burt's Bees in the wasteland? No. Just, No. You know, I like to think that, like, in a in a post-apocalyptic type world, that I could be useful in some way, like, that I could handle it. If there's no chapstick, no, I can't. <laughs> I, I'll go crazy. Like, I just realized that I didn't bring my chapstick to the recording table, and I may have to step away and go get some. <laughs> I usually bring it with me special. Why I don't have a special recording chapstick, I don't know. But without chapstick, I just... I'm actually surprised I, you don't have a recording chapstick, because you have your bedside chapstick, you have your dressing chapstick. I have chapstick, chapstick everywhere. You have your living room chapstick, you have your car chapstick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you have kitchen chapstick. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're never I'm more than an arm's reach at, away. I'm staring at my Burt's Bees, the, my my recording Burt's Bees right now. And I have usually one in pretty much every pocket of my jeans and side table. And yeah, same same def. Definitely yep. there with I feel you. a little lost. <laughs> yeah. And like genuinely when my lips are chapped and I'm my I'm uncomfortable in that way, like I feel distracted. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't focus. You might be getting a taste of that war boy madness that we're gonna see in Fury Road and <laughs> a little bit in Thunderdome. You know. Hey, if it was chapstick in those spray cans, <laughs> I I could go for that. <laughs> you'll so go to the legit. gates of Gal- you'll go to the gates of Valhalla, shiny chrome and moisturized. <laughs> Which is something those war boys desperately needed, but that is so far down the road. It's not even. I don't even want to think. It's going to be an entirely different year by the time we get to Fury Road. <laughs> Real quick, I I did notice him like licking his lips. He looked thirsty, but not like for water. He looked thirsty for fuel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it it's like he saw the copter and immediately like he didn't see the copter. He saw the fuel tank. Mm-hmm. It's like those uh, Warner Brother cartoons where you're stranded somewhere and you start to see the other person as a, a turkey or a stick. Yes, exactly. He sees the copter like... as a big oil can. Yes. <laughs> Max slowly pulls the car forward and he kind of comes to a stop and we get this nice picture of him looking out the window of this car and then we get another POV shot of just this gyrocopter sitting unattended in this clearing. And going back to my favorite resource, MadMaxMovies.com, they have a nice little entry about this gyrocopter, which, as they say, kind of looks like a helicopter. You look at it, big blades on the top, the engine on the back, you would imagine that it behaves just like a helicopter because that's exactly how they show it being used in this movie. However, this specific kind of aircraft is not capable of vertical takeoff and landing. It requires a runway because that big rotor up at the top of the machine kind of acts like a wing Hmm. and it's the propeller in the back that pushes the machine forward. And so kind of how on a regular airplane, the prop at the front pulls the plane up into the air on a gyrocopter, the 
top gets spinning, that's your wing. The prop on the back pushes the gyrocopter up into the sky and it's able to, you know, fly. The gyrocopter that we see here, we don't know exactly what kind of engine it was being powered by, but the gyrocopters of that era would have used like a VW engine or something similar. So pull the engine out of something like a VW bug, throw it on that thing, and it'd be light enough yet powerful enough to, you know, get it up off the ground. So apart from kind of the exotic paint job and the decals that are included on it, this is really a bare bones, very ordinary gyrocopter. There's nothing super flashy or special about it. And so since it was so generic, they actually were able to have two gyrocopters. One that was very nice looking and one that they could crash later on (laughs) in the movie. The fancy looking one actually survived filming intact and they ended up selling it at the post film auction and as happened with many other vehicles that were sold off in that auction just kept getting going from owner to owner to owner and if it still exists it probably doesn't look exactly the same because someone probably bought it and just started retrofitting it and upgrading it and whatnot so the gyrocopter that we see here like i said may still be alive just probably looks a bit newer and flashier than it does here. And so when you say of that era, <clears throat> you mean there are ones that people made and used and it wasn't just something specifically designed for this movie, this type of item, this this gyrocopter. Yes. I did a little bit of research on gyrocopters because like I said before, they look like a lot of fun and I want one. <laughs> so they really do exist. They are usually one or two people and... And the nice ones are like enclosed in like almost like a pod type thing. Those are the nice ones and which you can buy used for about $100,000. And that was the first one that I found. That was like the first price tag I saw. And I was like, sad. That's a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) But I did a little bit more digging and I found one that was much more bare bones. It looked much more like the one that we see in The Road Warrior. It was a two-seater. No, it was like open air. No casing around the occupants at all. They were just, they kind of looked like cheap plastic chairs (laughs) attached to a minimal frame (laughs) with a propeller on the back and rotors on the top. And that was pretty much it. Um, That used one was about 20 grand. Yeah. It's not exactly something you would take shopping. Right. (laughs) 20 grand is still a lot of money, but it's much more doable. Yeah. So I also did a little bit of research about getting a license to fly one, which was really hard to find information. The best I could find was that it's kind of attached to a pilot's license. It's like a special stamp Mm -hmm. on a pilot's license. So basically you have to get a pilot's license to fly one, which that's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Getting a pilot's license is intense and time consuming and expensive. And yep. So uh, yeah, they they really do exist. Yeah. In fact, when I was a wee lad, Nintendo 64, (laughs) there was a game called Pilot Wings 64, and you could ride a hang glider, you could use a jetpack, but one of the things you could use in that game was a gyrocopter, very similar to this one. And you had to start on the runway, take off, you could 
do your fly your maneuvers and then you would have to come back and land again and that was kind of the the tricky part of flying one of those things is being able to land did you have to take off runway style or helicopter style take off runway style nice get Mm. nice rolling start and pick up speed and then you're you're off and one thing that the gyrocopters in that game could do that this one really can't is the ones in the game could fire rockets the ones in this one here can't fire rockets (laughs) (laughs) be very different movie if this gyrocopter (laughs) could fire rockets i tell you that much max is looking at this thing and he turns off his engine grabs a pry bar and he gets out of the car because you know it looks like a gas tank to him and i like that you mentioned heidi earlier that as he gets out of the car things go really quiet like things immediately you know quiet down because max is starting to use that uh, that danger sense mm-hmm. that he kind of has except that max's danger sense is is good but it's not great i'm thinking of a very specific situation in the first mad max movie where he sees a motorcycle lying down on its side on the side of the road and so he parks his interceptor and he gets out to investigate and he's very cautious he's moving slowly he's got his gun at the ready he's ready to take on an ambush and and yet what he's he f- still surprised by the ambush what he fails to see is that it's a worse ambush than he originally expected and he ends up getting shot and run over and all this other horrible stuff <laughs> that was <laughs> that was kind of fun to watch but <laughs> in this instance he's definitely in that same mindset he's got his pry bar ready to go he's got his gun on his hip he's got other weapons stowed on his person and he's walking very slowly and very deliberately towards this gyrocopter because you know something could be off about this right that he needs to be ready for nobody is going to just leave this thing sitting there it yeah. just doesn't make any sense unless it's out of fuel Mm-hmm. Mm. Then it's useless and someone could have abandoned it there. And then it's also useless to Max. Yeah, but you never know until you check. Yep, he checks so, everything. What I like about this minute is that we go from looking at Max really close to this really nice wide overhead shot. Mm-hmm. And it's this shot that we kind of linger on for the next 12 seconds or so. A nice good chunk of this minute. There's a lot of details that we can see in this frame. I'm talking with my hands, I really... Yeah, we see, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we see um, footsteps, for mm-hmm. one thing, going, well, away from... Unless, you know, unless <laughs> someone was... <laughs> taken by the rapture we can assume that (laughs) away from from the gyrocopter makes them seem really alone too i think Mm -hmm. the the part of this this particular minute you know not only i think highlights the expanse of where they are and how empty it is and how you know spartan people are but just how alone he's been that he's gone off away to to really well i guess deal with his shit from like the previous movie you know and his own trauma and of course this this particular minute is really in the one after it really are, are so key to tipping off everything else that happens in the rest of the movie that there really is you know when you were talking about the, the audio cues of really creating a pregnant pause here so to speak of what's going to happen next yeah um and speaking of the previous movie this is has nothing to do with this moment right now but just when you all first started uh with the first movie with Mad Max that was that was the one that was my entry point so for my husband he's a few years younger than me so this was the first movie he saw and so he was you know all into the action and the costumes and all the cool stuff and the wasteland of it all and then um I hope he doesn't mind me sharing. And then, you know, he watched Mad Max 
it was such a different pace and it wasn't the wasteland and it was this whole different world. He was kind of like, eh, eh, you know, that wasn't quite so engaged, <laughs> which I totally understand. But um, back in the VHS days and hanging out and having, you know, not that many movies to maybe choose from, my friend Amy, her uh, parents were notorious for letting her have, uh, you know, boy-girl parties in high school. And, you know, they were the cool, <laughs> they were the cool parents that would let you come over. They even had a, a half pipe that skaters would come and practice their sick moves on. <laughs> and uh, that's where I saw Mad Max. So it, that Mad Max, I've probably seen five times or ten times or so. This one I've probably only seen twice or so. It, it's sort of like watching it for the first time, except for all the iconic images that seem to really mostly come from this movie. You know, just mm. when I think of all of the movies combined, you know, the new one has a lot of amazing iconic images, but this one really, you know, the, the costumes and the characters and the mohawks and the feathers <laughs> and all that stuff. That's what I remember from this movie more than the actual movie. So I'm looking forward to following along with you guys throughout the, the rest of the season of your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I never thought of it until you just said it, that a lot of yeah, a lot of the iconography of Mad Max in general, a lot of it comes from this movie. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot of people say that this movie is their favorite, the first one that they saw. And I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Heidi, that I've only seen this movie all the way through, I think twice. And one of them was before we started working on the movie, watching it through one more time. So... Uh, I'm really not that familiar with this movie, but there are things that, that I know. And yeah, the costumes, the hair, the feathers, the gyrocopter. Yeah, this, this movie has contributed a lot to the, the iconography of Mad Max. Yeah. So going back to the gyrocopter real quick, Molly, you mentioned the, the footprints kind of leading off from the left side of the gyrocopter kind of going off into the bush. And I find it interesting, the picture that we see here, where it kind of looks like whoever owns this gyrocopter parked it, tied one of the blades down, and then just walked out into the bush to, like I don't know, like you said, be raptured or something like that. <laughs> and it's, it's so clearly a trap. You get that sense that he kind of realizes it's a trap, but he's going to go for it anyway because that's just what you have to do to survive right he can't resist that gas tank mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even though he knows it's a trap yeah and i mean even as he steps towards the machine we kind of go from that nice wide shot down to the closer shot of max and you know there's no score it's just ambient sound and so we get reminded of that whole you know he's alone in the wasteland thing even his dog is still sitting in the car it didn't accompany him out to investigate this thing that he is a man alone against the world and that you know if this is resources that are going to help him survive you know he's got to take that risk and this is really where we leave off with this minute, him slowly walking towards the gyrocopter, and we don't quite know what's going to happen. People are just going to have to come back on Monday and find out. <laughs> 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 but we can't end the week without talking about what has happened between Monday and here. Just as a quick recap to talk about everything that we have seen to get real sense of, you know, what happened this week. Instead of chunking it out, we get to talk about it as a bit more of a, a whole. So we started off this week with Max kind of outmaneuvering his pursuers. He avoided getting shot with a crossbow and he used his MFP training to, you know, take out two of the raiders before he stopped to salvage fuel from the wreck he caused. 
So you say he stopped to salvage fuel from the wreck that he caused. But mm. the, I isn't that what he gets fuel from? I, I was a little confused. I, I see the car chase here. And there's a, several vehicles. And then he comes up to this huge vehicle or mm -hmm. truck or whatever it is. Where does he put the pans and get the fuel from? So in the chase, as the two cars, Max behind the, what's it's, it called, hun? The Landau. The Landau. Max behind the Landau. The Landau gets distracted um, because Max rear-ends him. And the the dune buggy comes up from the right-hand side. Right. Perpendicular to the Landau. Right. And the Landau smashes right into the dune buggy. The dune buggy smashes right into the big truck. And it's like, now it's crushed and like half underneath the truck. Gotcha. That's the fuel tank. The dune buggy fuel tank is the one that he puts like the hat, the, okay. the helmet and the jug and stuff underneath. Because I was thinking and now I see why and what you're describing. It all makes sense. Is yeah. Because I thought really he was fast. getting it from the truck. But I see that that makes sense why I'd think that because it's the dune buggy smushed. Right. Halfway into the truck, the truck. Okay. Gotcha. yeah and it's it's very mangled yeah okay. yeah and that's why the couple of dudes fall out of it too well one dude fall okay. oh wait one dude falls one dude out falls out but he's from the big rig yep. right with because he's yes. like got bulging eyes and looks like he's been putrefying but then the other person that so has the hand reach out that has like like they're wearing some fur or something. Mm. What are yeah. they reaching they're out They're inside from? the buggy. The buggy. That's the, the buggy. buggy guy. Yeah, okay. it's the buggy driver, which I'm I'm surprised he even had that much life left in him to cry out and reach his hand out. Like that was a pretty gnarly wreck. Yeah, that he was in. He. He pretty much got smashed between a car, I don't know, going at some significant speed and a truck uh, and just this, you know, little dune buggy with no, no airbags or safety features whatsoever. Probably didn't even have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm surprised that he survived long enough to have a death cry at all. Yeah. A terrible driver. He deserved it. <laughs> I think the thing that struck me most with the, the dune buggy coming out of kind of like you said crosswise is that it reminded it reminded me a lot of you know just it's just a hint of what we're going to get in fury road but, mm -hmm. you know, that crossing yes. of you know this wild driving yeah and all the different the... shapes of the different vehicles and things that always stand out to me like it's not just a bunch of the same kind of car like in a a movie where maybe they're all sponsored by you know one brand or something and you kind of end up seeing just a bunch of the same kind of cars yeah, and what's the movie? Chases. I think it's um, The Italian Job, where they're all driving minis. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, I like, we started this movie, the, uh, the, the opening chase has three different vehicles. We've got a motorcycle, we've got a, I don't know, a, a muscle car, sedan sort of thing, um, and then we have a dune buggy. So uh, this interesting variety already, and it's just the opening chase scene. Yeah, far more varied than the strictly nothing but motorcycles as far as antagonists are concerned from the first movie yeah right speaking of antagonists after max wrecks these pursuers and starts 
trying to collect gasoline, we get to meet Wes and the Golden Youth as Wes did his best to intimidate Max with his improvised road surgery before, you know, riding away. I am very curious what you ladies think of the Golden Youth and his relationship to Wes. I personally have many questions. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I did... And I think it, it might have been IMDb, but uh, the gentleman who plays Wes had suggested that um, the Golden Boy was actually more of a familial relationship. But that was the only, I think, commentary that I saw around what that was. I didn't particularly get that vibe. I felt that there was some other type of relationship happening. And ladies here, I also had a question of his maintenance of the blonde in, you know, the Outback because um, <laughs> bleaching hair is kind of a thing. And his yeah. blonde job was really quite amazing. So I don't know if they like were doing each other's hair or where you like pick up Manic Panic <laughs> like in the apocalypse or what. But like they had really on point and the facial hair was his facial hair is really on point too. But yeah, I have many questions about, you know, what kind of relationship they have because they obviously are sharing a motorcycle together. And, you know, they they felt close enough to share the same transportation. So you know, there's there's a closeness there, obviously. Yeah, I mean, my take was just looking at their closeness, their body language, their style, the golden youths, you know, kind of got a bit more of an androgynous feminine look, but they both really have, you know, that punk bondage aesthetic going big time. So yeah, I just figured they were together. They were partners. You know, when you look at their faces, they're they're very um, symmetrical and sort of almost <laughs> viewing Max, you know, with a, almost identical facial expressions and sort of that thing that happens with people when they're together for a while where they almost mirror each other. I mean, they have very different body types and stuff, but as far as their faces go, I can sort of see some symmetry there. And yeah, I mean, to me, they just look like a couple. So back a couple of days ago, when we, when Rick and I talked about the Golden Youth, I mentioned that his facial expression was very stoic the whole mm-hmm. time. He wasn't really giving much away. But now that I kind of think back to it, it could also be interpreted as being comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That he's that he's okay being there on the back of the bike. That this isn't necessarily... We kind of assumed that it was a bondage relationship in some way. Oh. Whether, okay. whether that be sexual or not. I kind of don't think it's sexual bondage. I think it's just, just plain dominance. But if you take his experience expression to be comfortable just you know every day i'm okay with where i am and what i'm doing and who i'm with and it i don't know it it does make it seem much more like a mutual relationship i see it a bit differently Now, as a bit of a behind-the-scenes detail, Jerry O'Sullivan, who played the Golden Youth, is not an actor. He is a delivery boy that the director saw delivering a package and said, boom, he's got the look, we're going to hire him. He's got the right blonde hair. The Golden Mm. Youth was originally written as a female character. Like, they didn't start from the onset saying that this was going to be, you know, a boy toy for 
for Wes. Mm. And so in his performance, you know, he's not an actor. He doesn't have any sort of acting training. And so the fact that his expression is so just non-expressive for the entire time that he's on screen, he never really smiles. He never really frowns. He just kind of has this very straight, I I would actually argue it's kind of, you know, nihilistic or bored, kind of like, you know, this is just my life. I'm not necessarily drawing contentment from it. This is just how I'm sustaining. Because as we talked about it the other day, we kind of saw it as... You know, the golden youth is Wes's property. Wes owns this golden youth kind of like a pet, you know, and he, meaning Wes, you know, has a thing about being dominant, about having someone that he can dominate for, you know, whatever reason. You know, it may be sexual, it may not. It. I just kind of look at Wes and I see him as someone that wants to control another living being and that if he gets some sort of satisfaction out of having the golden youth around, you know, it doesn't have to be... Uh, you know, of a homosexual nature, it can just be of a, you know, you're here, I own you, I'm going to use you how I see fit. And I feel like Wes is that kind of character where he's he's not philosophical, he's not emotional, he's kind of the id mm-hmm. running around. He's the id personified. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a possession element to that because the golden boy is, I mean, I think stands out as being very pretty. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, in a landscape and, and in a world that's very ugly in a mm. lot of ways. And I think that when that type of beauty is highlighted, it's important in some way. And and granted, this is way down the road, but I think that's in Fury Road as well, is that contrast of something being really pure and, inner, and innocent and beautiful in the context of you know, in the companionship of someone who is not that way. I think even though this society has broken down significantly, we already, even before we see the golden youth, we see signs that this particular community gives value to the aesthetic. Mm. They find things pleasing to the eye. You know, they go through the trouble of making these outfits with feathers and Wes's hair. They go through all this trouble that takes time and effort and resources. So, you know, we have this this beautiful boy that they also prize because he's beautiful and they mm. can appreciate that. And I know they're the bad guys, but that's an important part of a group of people becoming a society and a civilization mm. is that they find things beautiful. Yeah. And it could be that Wes's possession of this golden youth is like a status symbol. Mm. Like, mm. look at who I've got on the back of my motorcycle. That means I'm the biggest, baddest, mohawked marauder in the horde so you know give me a wide berth because you know macho macho pound on his chest type of thing Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, he definitely shows off some of that macho with that pulling out of the Ooh, yeah. arrow and <laughs> sliding it into his, um, whatever you call that, arrow His like, le- little leg quiver. Yes, his leg <laughs> Once Wes and the Golden Youth right away, Max is left alone with the Mack truck, and so he kind of goes about looking for salvage. And as we hear the last death screams of the buggy driver, Max turns his attention to the cab of the Mack truck, opens the door, and is startled to see the bloated, rotting corpse of the truck driver, which he procures a music box from. Plays Happy Birthday. Which he seems very moved by, Mm -hmm. as much as Max is moved by anything. Yeah. (laughs) We get the tiny 
tiniest wrinkle of a smile as he's sitting there turning the crank on that music box. Do you think that sort of harkens back to those, you know, tender moments with family playing music and maybe celebrating birthdays? You know, it it did not occur to me that Jesse was particularly musical and Max drew a great deal of pleasure out of just sitting there listening to her play. So, you know, music represents love to him. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and we talked a lot when he found that music box about how the song Happy Birthday alone would make him happy because he got one really good birthday with his son Sprague. We He had at least one. And the reason his smile is so fleeting is because he remembers through the Happy Birthday song his son, but then at the same time, he's almost immediately reminded of how he lost his family. So mm-hmm. it was a very bittersweet moment that we saw him experiencing. What do you guys think about the choice of it being like a little music box machine versus, say, using the technology of like a Walkman? You <laughs> mean like a Star-Lord situation? <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. like the, Because I think it's saying something with the technology and I'm curious what you think about that. Hmm. I think that using a mechanical item like a music box it is always going to work as long as the you just turn that crank it's going to work doesn't require any more outside force than the person i think that parallels the weaponry that we see i I think we might have touched on the weaponry and how analog it is way back in the first few minutes of the movie where everything is like crossbows or um air powered air powered there's not a lot of like i don't know the right term for it but like combustion powered yeah not a lot like of gun powder, gun powder. weaponry yeah. right N- not really a lot of that left everything is very analog mm. i appreciate the idea of the music box because something like a walkman and this is something that's never addressed in the guardians of the galaxy movies but walkman run on batteries and batteries are very finite things and even if you use them judiciously that doesn't mean that they're not going to just explode one day and melt down right batteries don't like heat yeah. right mm-hmm. so yeah the fact that he's able to find this little music box mechanism i mean that's just like Julia said, something that's always going to work as long as someone is there to work it. It's very analog, and I feel like, you know, in regards to the weaponry and in a lot of other things in this movie, analog is really the way it goes. There's very little, if any, digital remnants left over from the old world. Everything is really just dialed back to pure on analog you know combustion engines spinning, people using their own physical ability. Things have taken a step back. And I think that if they had introduced something more electronic, I feel like that just wouldn't have jived, you know, as well. Yeah. I think. You know, along those same lines, I know like the whole point of the Mad Max movies is centered around fuel, but considering that fuel, it was the drive for the apocalypse, I'm kind of wondering why they haven't replaced vehicles that need fuel with vehicles that don't need fuel like what i'm getting at is horses (laughs) why Why haven't they switched to horses like because if if fuel's at a premium but if you can't move around you're gonna die well then ride on something that doesn't need gasoline we are gonna see camels later on in this movie but i don't think we see any horses at all and again in the outback there's a lot of horses yeah but they're work horses which is better. So, 
getting off of the subject of horses and camels and what whatnot, we finally catch up with what happened today, where Max drives off into the sunset and finds the gyrocopter in this clearing. And that kind of wraps up the week. That's what happened this week. So before we wrap up for good, Heidi and Molly, if people want to hear more of you, what is the best way they can do that? Well, right now, the best way to connect with us is at um, on Instagram and on Twitter is Cabin Minute Cast. So just traditional spelling of the word cabin, the word minute, and the word cast. Cabin Minute Cast is our shorthand. Um, it's the way to find us at Twitter and Instagram. And most likely our website will be up by the time this is recorded too. But just in case, those those are for sure the places you can find us. Awesome. And when does Cabin Minute Cast start up? We're definitely going for October of 2017. So we don't have an exact date, but uh, we think that the scariest month of the year would be a fun month to get things started. Absolutely. Absolutely. So follow on Twitter and Instagram to start and everything else will fall into place, right? Exactly. Awesome. (laughs) The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for Minute 10 of The Road Warrior. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Bye.